This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. All right, if we can return back to our seats, please. And open up your Bibles to Philippians 4. Philippians 4. I hope that transition into the children's ministry was smooth for you. Looks like I had enough time to drop the kiddos off. It's great to be together. Great to have everyone together. Felt a little bit like Easter Sunday all up in here just now. I thought, wow, everybody is here. This is fun. So we are going to do Philippians 4 today. We're going to break this chapter down into three, three segments. And today we're going to cover the first nine verses. So um, if you have your Bibles, read with me. Philippians 4, verses 1 through 9. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Oh God, that is our hope and our prayer that the God of peace would be with us. For Lord, when you and your peace are with us, uh, our hearts are still, our hearts are at rest, our hearts are comforted, uh, our fears are dispelled, our faith is alive when the God of peace is so clearly with us. And so we ask you to speak to us as we walk through this text today. We ask that you speak to us, that you clearly, Lord, uh, that you give a clarion call to us, Lord, in response to you today. I pray that you would give joy to the discouraged, I pray that you would give peace to the troubled. I pray that you would give clear, truthful thinking to those whose minds are distracted with all kinds of untruth and deception today. Lord, I pray that you would give peace to us all by your Holy Spirit, Lord. Please have your work, do your will as we read your scripture and study it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is the last chapter, and so Paul's kind of wrapping up here in the book of Philippians. And when I was reading this, I, read it, I always read it a number of times before I start studying and preparing. And as I was reading this this week, I just felt like, man, I have no idea what to say 
because it seems like Paul is saying about 50 things in what we just read. And he's at the end of the letter, so it's, he's kind of squeezing it all in is what it feels like. And one commentator, he just put his finger on it perfectly. So this illustration may be for me and the few others of you that may have dropped a kid off at college recently. So if that's not your station in life, one day maybe it will be your station in life. But this illustration sunk home with me and a few others that I know did this recently as well. So I'm going to share it for the few of us, but you'll get, everybody will get the point. This is what he says. Uh, Dennis Johnson writes, Paul continues the wrapping up process in what sounds like a last minute bullet point to-do list. Rejoice, be gentle, don't worry, pray, think good thoughts, do good deeds. As he does in other letters, Paul fires off every piece of parting advice he can think of before his closing benediction. He sounds like a parent giving last-minute instructions to a freshman son before he sets off for college. Start your papers early, write us. Watch your checkbook balance, phone us. Take showers, email us. Wash your underwear, text us. Go to church, keep us posted, get enough sleep, stay in touch, don't do drugs. Write or phone or email or text us. Ideally, rather than tuning out or rolling his eyes in that, la- in that list, the young man hears their loving hearts speaking. And so I just had this experience with a sophomore, so the list is only half as long the second year. The first year it was twice that long, probably. When it's like, this is the last minute, and so everything I forgot to say in 18 years I need to say right now. And just mainly text, call, and visit is the main thing that you want to say in there, and then everything else. Uh, That's kind of what he feels like. He's just giving this list of things. And so as I began to look at this and study, I began to think, is it just really a random collection of commands? Or is there a thematic, is there a thematic thread running through what Paul's writing in these verses? Uh, I think number one gives us a clue, uh, verse one, and tells us that there is a thread. Look at verse one. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Well, he starts with therefore, my brothers. The therefore points back to the previous verses where he's just said, our citizenship is in heaven and we're waiting for Jesus to return. So he's saying, look, based on the fact that, that our, our existence is eternal uh, that, that Jesus is coming back for us, based on that, I'm going to tell you some things. Based on the eternal perspective, my love, whom I, my brothers whom I love and long for my joy and crown, stand firm. That's the command. The command is stand firm, thus in the Lord my beloved. So therefore looks backward, we're eternal, thus looks forward. Stand firm, stand firm, thus in the Lord my beloved. So thus, this is how, or so, or like this. Stand firm like this in, in my, my loved ones. This is what he's talking to them about. He's been writing them uh, a, a letter from prison where he's communicated many things about joy, about life, about serving, about the work of Christ, about life together. And now he's giving concluding exhortations. It's not a random to-do list with a frantic parent trying to tell their kid everything they need to know as they leave. It is rather, uh, it is rather a father that cares for this church that is giving them some ideas that have to do with standing firm. And I'm convinced that we can underestimate the importance of standing firm. We underestimate that. We, just, we, don't, we don't realize how vital and important it is just to stand, 
just to remain in Christ, just to remain trusting him and his gospel. We want flash, we want activity, we want amaze, and yet stand is what God often calls us to. It's interesting, in Philippians, I mean in Revelation 2 and 3, there's letters from Jesus uh, to seven churches. And what the running theme in all of those, in each of those churches he finds something to commend, and in most of them he finds something to critique as well. Jesus says, to the, it's a report card. Jesus says, this is what's happening in you that really brings me glory, and he literally says, this is what I have against you. Jesus is evaluating these churches, and the one characteristic in these persecuted churches that is highlighted over and over is, I commend you because you're standing firm because you're enduring, because you're holding on to truth. Listen, those aren't flashy characteristics. Most people aren't looking for a church that just stands firm. What are you looking for? I just want a group of people that are, that are weathering a storm and are in the, by the grace of God are standing firm and not being blown away. Most churches aren't going to advertise that. We don't. What are we about? We're about having storms and by God's grace just hanging on. Most people are saying, what's the children's ministry like? What's the music like? What's the preaching like? Do I like the, uh, do, are there people there I can relate to? Do I like the facility? Is it close? Does it meet at a convenient time? Do you do small group ministries or Bible? That's mostly, and those are great questions. But most people aren't saying, have these folks weathered any storms? Are they in the middle of a storm? And are people standing? Because that's what Jesus values is the people of God enduring. And that's what he's saying here. Here's, here's what he values. Stand firm in the Lord. And then he gives three ways, three kind of overall themes about what it means to stand firm in the Lord. First of all, he says, agree in the Lord. Secondly, he's going to say, rejoice in the Lord. And thirdly, he's going to say, think on the Lord. Think about the Lord. Think on the Lord. So, Agree in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, and, uh, and think on the Lord. Those are the three things he talks about here for them to stand firm. They are a church that is experiencing pressure from without. In chapter 1, he said to them that, that don't be afraid of your opponents. You're experiencing the same suffering I am, Paul's in prison. So they have pressure from without. They also have pressure from within. That's the first thing we're going to look at. Pressure from within. And so given the pressure from without and the pressure from within, what Paul, his hope for this church is that they will stand firm thus, like this, in the Lord. First of all, stand firm by agree in the Lord. If this church, Philippi, is going to stand firm, they're going to have to, they're going to, have to deal with their divisions. If they're going to stand firm, they'll be blown away. They'll fracture. Pieces of the body will blow away if they don't deal with their division. So they must agree in the Lord. Verse 2, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, we don't know who these, these are feminine names. I mean, probably you don't, we wouldn't know. Is that, are those guys, gals, one of each? They're, they're feminine names, so these are two women. And we don't know who they are. We don't know what they did. They must be high-profile ladies. They could have some kind of leadership role in, in some way in the church. We don't really know uh, what they did. But we do know this, that they, they labored side by side with Paul. That's what he says. The, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. So they've, they've done something to work with Paul in this church when he was there, and now they disagree. Well, what do they disagree about? We don't know. 
But there's some friction. There's some breaking. There's some disagreement between them. You know, I can remember when I was in school, sometimes teachers or would give this like threat about something that if you do something really bad, it'll go on your permanent record. And I don't know, I've never seen my permanent record. I don't know what a permanent record is. I hope the tardies in biology aren't on there like the teacher said they would be. But, you know, we think like, wow, this will be on your permanent record if you, you're late to class or whatever it is, your ninth grade year. Uh, talk about permanent record. These ladies are recorded for all of church history to know that they had a fight and they couldn't disagree. And we're a little, they couldn't agree. We're a little shocked by that. Like, whoa, Paul called them out by name. Like, we're going to meet them in heaven. Hi, I'm Euodia. Oh, are you? No, different Euodia. I mean, can I just imagine? <laughs> like, for a billion years having to say, no, it's the other Euodia. Just with name tag. I'm the, it's the other Euodia. It's not me. <laughs> Lived a thousand years later, okay? Don't blame me for what she did. But for, like, forever they're being, that troubled me. I, I'm going to read you. This is a little bit of a rabbit trail. But if you're like me, it troubled me that Paul was calling out people because I didn't know why. Why is he permanently calling out people by name? Why didn't he go to them personally? Well, this is what I found that's very interesting. First of all, we could just assume that everybody knows about the disagreement. He's not, this isn't a headline. He's not breaking news. Everybody knows they're divided. They were co-laborers with Paul on serving in the church. Everybody knows. Secondly, uh, by ancient writing standards, this is caring and polite and not rude. We would consider it rude if I read a letter and someone, not a church discipline situation, but I just started calling out names here, you know? Uh, if I'm just saying like, hey, Joe and Josephine, could you be on time? Whoa, people go, that is a rude guy. He called out people in front of the whole church. We think this is perhaps rude, but it's not. It's caring. Actually, in the ancient world, uh, to, to take two people that were notorious about something and to not mention them by name, but to do so in sort of a vague way would be to keep them at arm's length. One way that, uh, that would be very offensive for an ancient writer would be to leave an, even an enemy unnamed. To leave someone that you're saying something bad about unnamed, it, it sort of denigrates them. It sort of makes them anonymous. It's sort of the thing where we all know who you're talking about. Why don't you just say it? It's rude just to say, I'm going to try to make this like nobody knows, but we all know it's a small church It's in Philippi. We all know who you're talking about. So don't try to make it anonymous. So he's not doing anything rude. He's actually doing something caring. He's acknowledging his friendship with them. He's acknowledging his relationship with them. He's not seeking to embarrass them or something like that. Even his language, it's not embarrassing. I entreat you, Odia. I entreat Syntyche. It means I'm, I'm appealing. He doesn't come in with apostolic authority. He could say, I have apostolic authority. I founded the church. I'm writing the Bible. Work it out. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't command them. I'm, I'm entreating. I'm an appeal to you. Would you agree in the Lord? He, he's, he's making an appeal to them. He, he has a relationship with them, and they have a relationship with others. Look at verse 3. Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. By the way, in the whole church, the most excited person about this letter is Clement. 
I don't know anywhere in the Bible there's a guarantee that someone's going to heaven, but he just revealed that Clement's name is in the book of life. Clement and the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. You think about a good day. You just got the Apostle Paul writing under the interaction of Scripture and listing your name as in the book of life. I don't know anybody else who gets that. Maybe it's somewhere else in the Bible. That's the only time I've seen it. So that's a, or that I recall seeing it. So that's amazing. So why is he listing Clement and the rest of the fellow workers together? Why does he drop that in there? Because church conflict affects others. Euodia and Syntyche are workers, and they are in a conflict, but they work together with Clement. He's affected by that. They work together with the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. There's no such thing as a private sort of conflict that has no effect on anyone. Conflict affects as one person is hurt, others are hurt. As one part of the body suffers, the other parts suffer as well. They will be affected. Here's how this works. I don't know exactly if it was working in Philippi this way, but when two people, especially those who have served like this, cannot agree, then it affects others. I mean, sometimes if you're like closer to Syntyche than you are Euodia, you may feel like you need to sort of take Syntyche's side, even though you have no dog in the fight. You're you're not in that. You have no, uh, you have no no stated interest in the conflict. It's not about you, but if you're going to be a good friend to Syntyche, and then all of a sudden Euodia hasn't been offended with you, but now you're taking a side against her, and this doesn't include you and doesn't have anything to do, and you're hanging out with Syntyche and supporting her, so you must be opposed to me. And people start taking sides in church conflicts. People start taking offense for someone else. It's very easy for the fellow workers who have served together when two can't agree to say, well, I'm more on this side. Or I'm trying to remain neutral. And so people are affected. People talk. People get impressions. People don't get the whole story, but they get an impression and they form a conclusion. That's what happens in conflict when it's not dealt together. It is a community affair. And so he's naming, there's other workers. Could you guys, could you guys agree? Because I'm pleading with you to agree. We used to all work together but now a couple of us aren't working together. Then he sort of makes it an eternal issue whose names are written in the book of life. That that is powerful. I don't know what their disagreement is. It's not about the gospel. He would be calling someone out as a heretic if they didn't believe in Jesus. It's not about the gospel. It's about some secondary issue. And by the way, their names are written in the book of life. That means they will forever be with Jesus. He's just said Jesus is returning. He's now pointing us to the book of life, and, and, and guess what? A few millennia from now, whatever the disagreement is, it will not matter. It will be so, in light of eternity, a, almost every disagreement is petty. In light of eternity? We, we're joined together in a family for eternity. We're not just doing life together, we're doing eternity together. And so would you please work this out? Please agree in the Lord. It shows the depth of our relationship. It shows the stakes of the disagreement. It shows eternity. It really won't matter in the long run. And then he asked this companion, unnamed companion, uh, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Sometimes when there's a disagreement, it's necessary, oftentimes, to bring in someone to help. That's, that's a good thing. And so he's, he's got a companion. We don't know who it is, but they would all know who it is. 
And so, companion, could you help these ladies? Could you work, help them work it out? Could you help them agree in the Lord? Could, could, a lot of times agreement comes by focusing in the Lord. What do we share in the Lord? What's central in the Lord? A lot of times agreements, sometimes people just won't see eye to eye on something perhaps, but that's where there's room where we forgive. That's where there's room where we extend grace. That's where we put the interest of others above ourselves, which he has already said. That's when we look at the model of Jesus who laid down his life for his enemies. That's where we come and say, I can put together my, I can put aside my preferences or whatever if we can't see eye to eye on this. And I can come alongside and we can agree on what's central. We can agree on Jesus. We can agree in the Lord and in our calling and in our mission together. That's what he says. They may not come to a plea to complete agreement on how, whatever the secondary thing is, but they can agree in the Lord. They can agree. They are one in the Lord. And they can act like it. And that's what he's calling them to do. I wonder what God might be saying to some of us in the room today about this. I wonder, what, wonder if there's anyone that we have a settled, unsettled disagreement with. Well, that's one advantage of all being together. Because we can't, we can't forget, oh yeah, that person's in the other service. Well, if they're, here, if they're at Grace Church today, they're in the room. Because we're all together. We're all together. So is there anyone like that, that God's calling you to, to, to settle with. Maybe you need to draw in help. We just met all these small group leaders. Maybe you need to ask your small group leader for help. Maybe you need to ask a pastor for help. Maybe you need a, a mutual, trusted, mature friend. Maybe you need to ask them for help. Standing firm. See, disagreement, unsettled disagreement. I, I'm, I'm, I'm pleading, could they agree? Why? Because we will not stand firm individually with unsettled disagreements, and we will not stand firm as a church. We cannot stand firm. This is one of the key ways to break apart a church is by unsettled disagreement. Here's what my experience is. I'm not a really old guy, but I've been around long enough to have experience in the church. And here's my experience about people that were with people who were once very active in the church and then moved to complete inactivity and isolation. Here's what it usually is. Most people that drift from active participation in a local church to isolation do so because of a relational problem. Most people do not blow off church and leave and, and separate themselves from any church uh, uh, because of a doctrinal issue. It's usually a relational issue. Almost always it's a relational issue. It's someone who's grown embittered by their church experience and doesn't find another, doesn't perhaps deal with it and doesn't move into another fellowship but isolates themselves. It's one of the key ways to knock down a believer so that they don't stand firm is to separate them from someone in the body of Christ. And then you find them saying something like this, well, I love Jesus, I just don't love the church. Not an option. Absolutely not a biblical option. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And the scripture throughout calls us to be together, the body. Do not forsake the gathering of yourselves, Hebrews says. We, one of the big ten even calls us to recognize the Lord's day as something special, the Ten Commandments. And throughout, we're called to be a part of body. I can't love, if I love Jesus, I will love what Jesus loves, and Jesus loves the church. Jesus loves the people of God. Paul's calling all these folks, including the two ladies that are at odds, my beloved, my joy, my crown, See, he loves the, Jesus loves his people. And I don't have the option of saying, well, I, I, I just love Christ. I don't have anything to do with his people anywhere. So this is what, if we don't 
if we don't make our, relations, our relationships right. I'm not saying that everybody's going to see eye to eye on everything. We may not. That's where there's room to extend love and to extend grace and to extend forgiveness. And so I entreat you, agree in the Lord. If, if, if the Philippian church is going to stand firm, as Paul commands, as the Lord commands, they're going to have to agree in the Lord. Number two, you're going to have to rejoice in the Lord. Verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Standing firm means rejoicing. Now note, here he's not appealing. This is unusual. You would think he would command people at odds to agree. Instead, he entreats. You would think if you're going to tell people to rejoice, you would appeal to them to rejoice. He doesn't. He commands. God says, you must rejoice. Paul says, please agree. That's totally counterintuitive. I, I would expect the exact opposite. But he says, rejoice. Now, how can, you, how can you do that? How can someone command you to be happy? I have four kids and one grandson. I tried this with all my kids when they were little. You, we are going, and you will enjoy it. We say, you're four-year-old, come in. You will be happy. Dry those tears, and you will enjoy this. Even though I'm utterly not enjoying this and there is no happiness anywhere to be found in my being, you will enjoy that. You know, that doesn't work. I found it never worked to command them to be happy about something. It's not like they had a switch. Oh, okay. I hadn't even thought about that. You're right. I should be happy about what I'm about to do that I don't want to do. <laughs> so how can he command them to rejoice? Well, there is a difference in a command to be happy, and a command to rejoice. When we think of being happy, when we use the word happy, what we usually mean is that happy is an emotional response to a favorable circumstance. But that's not a definition anybody. I mean, you won't find that. That's my definition. That's not in the dictionary. That happiness is a favorable response, uh, is, is, is a, an emotional response to a favorable circumstance. I got a raise. I'm happy, you say. Uh, you're a single lady who wants to be married and would like to and hope that guy might be the Lord and he asks you out. I'm happy he asked me out. I'm happy. You're a student. I got an A on my test. I'm so happy. It's, it's an emotional response to a particular circumstance. It's your birthday, and so we tell you, happy birthday. We don't say rejoice birthday. We say happy birthday. This is an emotional response to an external circumstance. So happiness can come and go. Happiness can come and go. You may get a raise today and you may get fired in a month and the happiness is gone. You may go out with him and it ain't what you thought it was going to be and the happiness is gone. You may get an A now, but you may start getting some Fs and you got a C for the semester and you weren't so happy at that point. And the birthday's gone and life goes back to regular. Everybody's not celebrating you and giving you a shout out on social media and having a party, etc. And all of a sudden you're back to regular. So happiness can wane based on our circumstances. But rejoicing is different. Rejoicing means, the word rejoice means to be joyful again. Re means back or again. It's joy again. So rejoice is a renewal of joy. And we can all be renewed in joy when we think about something that is valuable, something that is beautiful, 
something that is precious, something that is meaningful to us. I travel some, and when I travel, uh, and I'm away from my family, and I want to be at home or something, I can think about my family and what they mean to me, and I can rejoice. The circumstance may not be happy, I'm away, but there is something in my heart towards them, and there's a rejoicing. I, I renew the joy I have with them as I think about how I value them. So I can rejoice. The key in this passage, in this command rather, is the source of rejoicing. Rejoice, verse 4, in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He's not saying be happy about your circumstances. He's writing from jail and may be executed. He's not saying I've got happy circumstances. Wow, if I could write a script for my life, wouldn't I want to be in jail? No, he's, no, he's not ha- that, that is not a happy circumstance, yet he can rejoice for any number of reasons. And here we're to rejoice in the Lord. So as we think about the Lord, as we consider the value of Jesus, the glory, the grace, the love he has for us. The Father has adopted us. Our sins are forgiven. Jesus paid the ultimate price for us. We will spend eternity with him as we think about all that he's done for us and all that it means that he loves us in spite of ourselves, that he extends forgiveness to us even when we sin, that particular sin again, even after we said we wouldn't, there's still no condemnation for us. He is with us. He is growing us. He is changing us. Even our worst experiences will turn out for our good. They will, we will be conformed to his images, his image, no matter what. All things work together for our good, to be like Christ. So all of these truths about him, as we think about the wonder of him, the love of him, the grace of God to us, then we renew our joy. Rejoice in the Lord. Renew the joy of your heart in the Lord always. Make that your lifestyle, Paul says. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now, Paul is in circumstances that we know he's not happy every moment. In in chapter 2, 27, he says, God spared Epaphroditus from death so that I didn't have sorrow upon sorrow. What does he mean? I have sorrow now. If this guy died, I'd have double sorrow. Or last week we looked at, chapter 3, verse 18, he's writing about enemies of the cross, and he said, I'm telling you about these people with tears. He's not happy that people oppose the cross and are, are headed for destruction. He's not happy about that. Yet he can still rejoice in the Lord. How is this possible? Well, the same way it's possible for Paul, that our joy must be tied to something, rather someone that's unchangeable. If our joy is tied to the changeable, it it, it will never maintain. We won't have a lifestyle of joy. And Paul's saying here, if you're you're to stand firm by the grace of God, if if you're to stand firm by God's grace, it's going to mean that you're not going to tether your heart to your circumstances. Because if you tether your heart to your circumstances, you'll be whipped around constantly in life. No matter what's happening, you'll be like a kite, in a hurricane. You'll be blown this way and that way. You'll just be moved by your circumstances. But if you tether your heart to Christ and who he is and what he's done, then you can avoid the constant up and down emotional cycle of all over the place. And even though life will have happy moments and sorrowful moments, You can be sustained by joy because joy is the result of thinking of God and his posture towards us. 
his love for us. Listen, Paul has enemies, but God's not one of them. And when we realize that we are his friend, that we had been opposed to him, but he's made us his friend. We were his enemy. We've now been joined to him. We're forgiven, loved, adopted. We're awaiting his return. We're awaiting his return and an eternity with him. If our focus is on him and not our circumstances, then it is possible, regardless of circumstances, to rejoice in the Lord. Listen, some of you have really bad stuff going on in your life right now. You've got a relationship that's breaking apart or is at odds. So you're totally related with this first point. You are Euodia or Syntyche. And it's breaking your heart. You've got a financial situation that that keeps you up at nights. Your job is uncertain and tenuous. You might get called in this week and lose it. You've got bad circumstances, yet when we sang some of the songs we sang today, in your heart, your joy was renewed because you thought about what really matters and you were tying your mind and your heart to Christ and what he's done for you and not your circumstances. It felt like a respite for you. It felt like a break. And that's what Paul's saying, that that is to be a lifestyle for us, to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say with joy, rejoice. And then what he says next is he he talks about one of the deterrents, the great deterrents to joy, and that's worry. He says, do not, verse six, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So if you're, if you're going to stand and not fall, it'll be necessary to rejoice in the Lord. And what that will mean is that we're not to be anxious about things, but we're to pray. Be anxious, do not be anxious about anything, but pray about everything is what he said. Don't be anxious about anything, but pray about everything. We all have anxieties. Everybody in the room has anxieties, some more than others. And it's a mystery. It's a mystery. Some of us constitutionally are more given to worry than some others. We all have our issues. Some of us are more given to worry, and some of us are more given to perhaps some other life challenge, some pattern of, um, of sin in our lives. But he says, don't be anxious. See, uncertain circumstances can tempt us to anxiety. Anxiety is always tied to what might happen, what's outside of my control. So I get anxious when I wonder about what's going to happen outside of my control. We're rarely anxious about the things that we can control, but we are anxious and worried about things we cannot control. The reason I say that is because that Paul's the poster child for that. He is in prison, and he will stand before Caesar, who has all power from an earthly point of view, and Caesar will decide whether he lives or dies. He's got a very uncertain future. There may be a few of us in the room that are battling an uncertainty, a health situation perhaps that has life and death tied to it, but most of us aren't in a situation like that today. And so he's given this huge uncertainty, and he's saying, hey, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer, supplication, that means making requests to God, with thanksgiving, thank him, let your request be made known to God. He's saying when you take the uncertainties of your life and you hang on to them and you carry them, you will be worried. When you take the uncertainties and you own them, you will be worried. But the scripture says in 1 Peter 5, 6, cast all our anxieties on him for he cares for us. 
It's exactly what Paul's saying. You are not made to carry anxieties. You are not made to carry the weight of the uncertainties of life on your shoulders. You are not made to carry the burdens of what might happen tomorrow. Jesus said this, each day has enough trouble of its own. Don't worry about tomorrow's troubles. Look to me today. So rather than, rather than carry anxieties and worries, we are to cast them on him for he cares for us, 1 Peter 5. We don't carry worries, we cast. This is wonderful. This is such a glorious picture of grace that God comes to us and saves us and says, I will take all the uncertainties of your life and I will carry them. I w- you can release them to me. I will own the uncertainties because there are no uncertainties with me. I rule, I am sovereign. So God is in essence telling us that if we, he's not saying work this out on your own. He's not saying lose sleep and think about it and mull it over. He's not saying carry it, carry it, be weighed down by it. You deserve it. He's saying grace, I'll take all of that. And you know what you can have in its place? Peace. That's what you can have. Be worried about nothing, pray about everything is what he has said. Here's what I find in my own life. I am, when I am weighed down with worry, that's like the least joyful time in my life. So, rejoice in the Lord always, don't be anxious. This really goes together. When I'm anxious, I'm not rejoicing in the Lord. I'm troubled by all kinds of things. I also find, at the risk of sounding oversimplistic, I don't think I'm going to sound more simple than Paul here, uh, I also find that when I'm most worried, usually I'm least prayerful. Most worried, usually, usually, least prayerful. Now, if you're bearing a lot of anxieties today, I'm not saying you have zero prayer life. I'm not saying that, so please don't, please don't hear that. I can't diagnose everything about a life. But, but the point right here is very clear. Rejoice, don't be anxious, pray, receive peace. This is the grace of God. God promises to take our burdens and carry them so that we can rejoice and we can be at peace. Verse 7, if we cast all our care on him, if we pray about everything, verse 7, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The word guard is, is the picture of a military garrison guarding a city. So enemy thoughts, enemy lies, burdens, worries, uncertain future, all these will bomb us, but they have to come through the peace of God to get to our hearts and the peace of God will hold them off. Why? Because we've cast it over on the Lord, and we're not carrying it, but we're praying about everything. With prayer and supplication, let our requests be made known to God. And then the peace of God guards those thoughts from returning and, and, and overpowering us. That's what Paul says here. So if they are going to stand, they must rejoice in the Lord and not be weighed down by the anxieties, but to cast them on the Lord, and he'll give them peace. Lastly, they must think on the Lord, and this will be by far the briefest. Verse 8 says, finally, brothers, and that includes sisters. It's a, it's a term generic that means brothers and sisters. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. If we're going to stand firm as a people, as an individual, as a church, it will start with our thought life. We're called to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we love the Lord with our mind by thinking these kinds of thoughts, by having these kinds of thoughts be our daily uh, meditation, our daily feast, 
things that are true, things that are honorable, things that are just, things that are pure, things that are lovely. He gives a broad category, if there's anything worthy of praise. Things that are praiseworthy. I find in my own life that when I am inconsistent, when I am hypocritical, when I feel like I'm losing ground with the Lord in some way, it usually is tied to what I'm thinking about. It's tied to the ongoing conversation that goes on in my head between me and, well, me. It's that ongoing conversation. It's what am I thinking about? What am I entertaining myself with? What am I reading? Where am I going to on the internet and filling my mind with? What, what am I staring at on my phone and taking in for long periods of time while life is going on? What am I staring at and filling my mind off of my phone? Is it what's honorable and just and excellent? Do I love the Lord with my mind? See, a change of heart will always start with a change of mind. I will be able to rejoice when my mind thinks truth. When I think the truth about Jesus, I'm rejo- I didn't find it hard to rejoice uh, 45 minutes ago or whenever we were singing because I've just got this truth blasting at me. I didn't, I didn't really find it that challenging because I was thinking, you were telling me what to think by putting the words up there. Oh, think that. And that's biblical and true. And there was peace and there was uh, all that's being talked about here. What do we think about? I think the terms he uses here certainly describe Christ. They certainly describe his word. They describe more than that, though. I think thinking, filling our minds with what's true, what's beautiful, what's good and just. By God's common grace, there are honorable things, there are just things, there are lovely things in life by his common grace. So it is filling our minds with things that reflect his character. It obviously means reading the scripture, but it does not mean 12 hours a day you're reading the Bible. That is not what we're called to do a job and do other things. But it means meditating on the truth of who Jesus is, his word, and filling our minds with things that reflect his character, even if by common grace they're the things that are just and true and beautiful and good in the world around us. So he gives us what to think about, and the last thing he tells us what to do, he says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Here's the final assurance, and I've got to leave you with this, because that's where it is in the passage. It starts with stand firm, but he leaves us with the God of peace. I love that. He, God is the one who will ensure that we stand firm. God's grace will root us and ensure we don't blow away. God's grace will hold us together. The God of peace will unite us even when there could be differences. He says that if we pray, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and mind, verse 7. When you pray, you're not going to believe. It makes no sense how your mind could be filled with peace. Impossible. Impossible, but it's possible by grace. So he says, if you pray, you can have the peace of God. But here he says, our ultimate confidence is the God of peace will be with you. Our hope is the God of peace will be with us. The God of peace when we pray. The God of peace when we are challenged outside, persecuted by the world. The God of peace when there's differences inside the church. The God of peace when everything in me wants to fall apart and not rejoice. The God of peace when anxious thoughts become overwhelming panic, worry to my mind, the God of peace will be with me. The God of peace can bring peace where there's division. We can agree in the Lord. 
The God of peace can bring joy where we are dry or distressed. We can rejoice in the Lord by grace. The God of peace can enable us to fill our minds with things that are worthy of his praise. We can think on the Lord. Paul loves the Philippians and he wants them to make it, but more importantly, God wants them to make it. God ensures they will make it. The God of peace is with us. God wants you to make it. God wants us to make it. And the God of peace is with us. We have storms without, just like the Philippians did. We have storms within because it's a room full of people who are fallen, all of us. We have storms without, we have storms within, but we have the God of peace, and the God of peace stills storms. The God of peace protects his people from the storm. The God of peace will ensure that we stand. We're called to trust, to look, to think, to pray, to receive his grace, and the God of peace will secure us. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.